today uh, will feel a little bit different. Over the last few weeks, we have been talking about what love actually is. There's lots of things. We can love pizza and we can love our spouse. We can love our children um, and we can love ice cream. And so what is love actually? And when we talk about love, we have to talk about God because God isn't just loving. That would imply that somehow God could be unloving. God is, in fact, love. He can't not love. And so... Sometimes that love gets demonstrated in all sorts of ways. And I thought of a shepherd's crook as a kind of metaphor for how God guides us into life. Because there is some directionality to love, is there not? Love can't simply be tolerance as if we just can go off our own course and just let them be them. And God wants to guide us and mainly and mostly from ourselves and our self-destructive ways. But God also, in His infinite wisdom, rescues us from danger and harm and lots of things, and He brings us into right relationship. And so sometimes we feel the correction of God. Sometimes we feel the displeasure of God. But maybe some of the things that we grieve, maybe some of the things we feel about injustice, are exactly the same loving things that God feels. And He put those in your heart. He's allowed you to react that way because that's exactly how He feels and is inviting you to be a part of His salvation on earth. Over the last few weeks, we've been going through this, um, this series on what does it mean to love God. And maybe the best way to describe love is a covenant relationship. This becomes the framework which we begin to understand the world that God intended and the purpose and the plan for every one of our lives as image bearers. So today, rather than just taking a passage of scripture or a topic and wanting to just mine and see what it says, I want to do something that might cause my preaching professors to cringe a little bit. I'm going to do something over the course of the next... And that goes from Genesis to Revelation, which we're going to do in the next 20 minutes. Hold on, buckle up. We're going to look at God's large arc, the 30,000-foot view of God's plan to restore and repair not only our lives, but the broken humanity in which you and I call normal that God never actually intended. Ready? So, what we have in the beginning is this story that begins in a garden. And this is a 30,000-foot view so that you can not only see what God's plan is, what God intends, but that why we can find a, a new alignment, if you will. And so in the garden, things are perfect. Things are as God intended them to be. We're created in perfect relationship with the God of the universe in the unfiltered presence of God because we're simply created in the image of God. At the very beginning, chapter 1, he's, he's starting to create an order in creation, and there is a hierarchy. And God's plan from the beginning was to invite you into this intimate relationship so that you, despite you, 
could live in harmony with the God of the universe, in harmony with your fellow mankind, and the harmony that exists within our environment. This is super important to start the story here and to understand what God's intent from the beginning was. So we are bearing the image of God so that we can reflect who God is in creation. We're created in perfect relationship. In fact, it says in Genesis 1 and 2 that God walked in the pool of the garden. Sin had not entered the human equation, and so there was this unfiltered presence of the glory of God that humans could actually absorb. This is exceptional, and this is what we ultimately have to look forward to. But understand this, death was never a part of the human condition. That was never a part of the world that God actually intended. And so we're created in this beautiful way, in this kind of naked and unashamed, unfiltered presence of the reality of God. And what does he do? Genesis chapter 2, he's creating more and creates in this garden a kind of stewardship of responsibility. And he says, I created a good earth. Remember how God went through all of the things? He's like, whoa, this is all like watery, formless, and he created land separate from sea, and then he created light separate from darkness, and then he created like vegetation, and, 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 and then he creates animals, and then he gets to humanity. So God's like, mm-hmm, and he did this, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and then he's like, bam, humanity. Very good. So there is this hierarchy of creation, this order that, that God wants to sustain and maintain, that we are created in this image, and then he puts us in charge of the stewardship of it. He's like, hey, do something with your life. Reflect me. But because you bear my image, you and I, we're co-creators of the world that God actually intended. A lot of times we believe that somehow eternity has happened when we die. But once you know and are in relationship with Christ Jesus, eternity has already begun. You have dual citizenship. As citizens of heaven, working out that salvation on earth to reflect God and His His sort of harm. Explain what God is like. So He wants us to be constructive with the creation. He wants us to order it. He wants us to do good within it because He said it was good. And we, we have this disruption of harmony because there's this episode with fruit. And, and humanity, and seriously, a lot of times when we go through the historical story, we tend to look at them and there. It's like this historical account, like, oh, those stupid Adam and Eve, or those stupid Israelites, couldn't they figure out? Please understand that when I'm going through this arc, their story is our story. Their lack of faithfulness is my lack of faithfulness. And God has been always trying to recapture, restore, repair the broken humanity that happens right here in Genesis chapter 3. Because what do they do? They violate the boundaries that God has created for them and it disrupts the harmony. And people, or we, start using power and creativity for our own purposes, for our own satisfaction for our own well-being. So what do we have? 
We have a first family that starts having kids, and the first kid kills his brother. Immediately in the creation story, at the beginning of humanity, we have a problem with major family dysfunction going on. But, prior to this, heaven and earth are the same place. Heaven and earth collide in the garden, and it's the world that God intended. Did God intend for miscarriages? Did God intend for COVID or cancer? Did God intend for a world where people would grow up with Down syndrome or a predisposition towards obesity? No. These are all the impact and the effects of the fall, and what you and I experience as normal is not the world that God intended. But that's not the end of the story. See, this Genesis, it's not how the story begins. Power and volatility and the fragile nature combined with our free will do. And right away we said, wow, this thing could get off track in a hurry. And oh, by the way, it just did. But God's not done. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he creates covenant relationships. Now, what God could have done is pre-programmed us to just like mindlessly sue him. But how is there love when you were obligated? There's not. I can't force you to like me. I can't force you to come. I can't force you to be in relationship with me any more than God can. He didn't pre-wire us because there is no love in obligation. Get it? So now what we have is this disruption to harmony and the hierarchy because we start using God's gift. with him for our own gain. And then by the time we get to chapter 6, all of a sudden, God's like, oh my gosh, these people are, are self-destructing. I've got to do something. So God hits the reset button on, on creation, right? And that's where we get Noah showing up and building a boat, and he tries to just save the smallest remnant possible to try and save humanity from itself. And so this ancient Middle Eastern picture where you have water always represented chaos and destruction, like it was at the very beginning. But God wants to save people, and he's like, this, this is not going good. But by the time we get to Genesis 11, and don't worry, it'll pick up a little speed, we'll cover a little bit more ground, but I've got to lay the foundation. Genesis 11, there's this episode where they have this new innovation, a little new technology, and They have this new technology where they create grit and mortar. So innovation and technology and creativity have always been a part of this human landscape. But what do they do in this moment? They've gotten so far away from being in covenant relationship with God, they decide they want to build a tower to the sky. This is the Tower of Babel. And, and it's what they're actually gesturing is, God, I don't need you. We want to demonstrate our greatness because look at what we've accomplished. And by the way, their story is our story. We do this all the time. The minute we get a little self-sufficient, the minute we get an education, the minute we get some net worth, the minute we get some, we have a tendency my story. This is me being autobiographical here when I'm reading through the historical account of God's people. What does God do? Babel means confusion. At that time, all of humanity spoke one language. 
And God's salvation plan, because he made a covenant with Noah saying, I will never do this to humanity again, flood the earth. I'm running the place, and he's like, I've got to do something. And so he separates people by languages. And all of a sudden, people start speaking different languages, and they're looking at each other like, I can't understand you. But the whole point was, I am God to save humanity from itself, and I'm going to set apart a people group in order to reflect my likeness and reach the whole world. Why? What we have in God is a story of second chances. What we have in covenant love isn't just a a mutually committed agreement, I'll love you as long as you love back. No, God's saying, I will be faithful in covenant even though you are faithless. Even though your heart runs hot and cold, I am going to be and demonstrate my loving kindness. trying to restore and repair a creation, starting with each of our own hearts. So what does he do? I separate a family by a language, and then I move into this thing called the birth of the Hebrew nation. This was God's family. We are descendants of that family. And he takes a couple of old people, barren in their ways, never having kids, and he's like, I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he's like, Really? I kind of missed my prime. And it's like, I know, because it's going to be obvious that only I could do that. And so God creates and goes into this covenant with Adam. He wants to start a family, not biological, but spiritual. Not ethnic, but one that would transcend. And the point is, I am going to bless you, and you are going to be a blessing. So this new family was supposed to not just be the new royal family. It's not supposed to be autonomous and unto themselves. It was going to be, your blessing is going to go to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And this is going to be part of my salvation plan. Except what do the Hebrews do? They, they, they believe like everyone else does in their local deity, thinking this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the monopolized God rather than the God for all mankind. And so this becomes the Hebrew story as they start looking around. And so you have this picture up until Genesis chapter 12. Perfect world, immediately experience the effects of free will and power. And there's this sense that people need to get rescued before this whole thing falls apart. So God grows the garden into a family with the idea that over the ages, it's going to grow to reach the rest of the world. And then we have... (laughs) Very quickly, God's rehabilitation plan. Do you remember what happened to God's family, the people of God? Instead of being a demonstration and a display to all humanity, these people are captive now, living as slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Wait a second. This is not our calling. Well, whose fault is that? Has God quit loving? Absolutely not. God is a God of second chances. God is a God who's trying to repair and restore our humanity and our collective sense. One of the things we struggle with, particularly in the West, we have an idol of individualism. Have a relationship with God, it's not for me and mine. Even though I have resources, even though I have um, network, even though I have an influence, even though I have gifts and skills and talents, 
The idea was that was never supposed to be for your benefit. You were created in my image so that the world might be blessed, which now starts to inform my identity. And we can't look at our own salvation as sort of a get-out-of-jail path or, or some kind of a fire insurance policy to avoid hell. That was never part of God. He was trying to bring us into alignment with this covenant relationship. And so we have Moses standing up doing the, let my people go! And then the scene parts and they get to the other side and they're delivered from 400 years of oppression. Because why? Not because they were faithful, but because God hears the cry of the oppressed. And so right back in chapter, or chapter 16, verse 2, what are they Oh, God, you know, I, we, at least when we were in Egypt, we had like meat in our broth and, you know, in our stew. And what are we going to eat? And what are we going to drink? And they're like, oh my gosh, this is my story. God, what have you done for me lately? I prayed for you to reveal yourself to me, but you haven't shown up. Maybe we could look and see God in the sequence of our lives. And we can begin to think. So we have this, and in every Hebrew mind, when Moses goes up to uh, Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments, that's viewed as a covenant marriage. God to his people. That's what that... So when Jesus comes out, uh, sort of his first miracle, and he, his first miracle is at a wedding, like all the like warning signs on the dashboard are going off for every Jewish reader because he's like, wait, it's not just a party trick. He's doing that at a wedding. This is like a new covenant. Oh, we'll get there. Okay. Garden goes into a family that now, well, 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 well what do we do? We need a land. We, we, we need a place to call our own. And so they take the scenic route, but God's committed to being in covenant relationship with them. And so he gets there, and now we have Joshua, kind of the next generation, because Moses couldn't lead the people effectively. He got into the stores, but he wasn't going to enter the promised land. So Joshua, this new generation of, of, of God's people would go through. And he says, this land, it's, this is the choicest of lands, um, but you still got to conquer it. Trust me, go. And they're like, hey, can't you just like give it to us like a lottery ticket? And they're like, no, that requires none faith. So he goes, and then you have the story of Joshua fighting the battle at Jericho. Why? Because Jericho was the first city on the other side of the Jordan, and they had to conquer it, and the walls come tumbling down. I don't know if you remember that story. Okay, so they enter this promised land, and now the whole book of Joshua is about settling in. The problem with settling in is that we get kind of comfortable. When we settle in and get too comfortable in our own faith and salvation, we have a, a reluctance to trust God. We pray prayers for safety and blessing instead of the advancement and miracle territory that God wants to see us do. That creates a kind of complacency. Well, what does the complacency do? Well, they decide once they settle in, well, the next thing they've got to do is we've got to order ourselves. I know you have a created order. I know you have a hierarchy of creation, Lord, but we want our own. And so we want a king. It's like, well, here's the thing. I'm your king. And they're like, hey, every other tribe on earth, every other people on earth, not only have their own God, they have their own king. It's like, I'm the king of kings, yo. You need no other. 
And so he's like, come on. And so there is in this book of Judges something called the Judges Cycle. Tell me if this sounds mildly familiar. The Judges Cycle would go like this, because before there was a king, God ruled through a judge. And a judge would be the person that would be able to lead God's It always has this trigger phrase that you see, and they did what was right in their own eyes. They saw truth as relative. They saw that did anything they saw fit. Where did that lead? Captivity, bondage, slavery. Then they would be an oppressed people, and they would cry out, and then God would raise up a new judge of which there would be a deliverance. And then there would be a season of peace, but once that peace settled in, they got complacent and did what was right in their own lives. And the judges' cycle keeps repeating itself like it does in my own heart. Oh God, I got myself into something else. Get me out of this. I'll do better next time. Spiritually, wondering, God, where are you when? But then they said, well, here's what we got to do. Once we figure out this thing, oh, and, and somewhere in there, in First Samuel 8, uh, they get a, a new king. But it's, it's their choice, not God's choice. They got King Saul, the first king over all Israel, to lead the people of God, but he doesn't really, he's not God's choice. He's tall, he's handsome, but when he shows up at his coronation ceremony, he's hiding. you want leading your country. No. So he's a disaster. And then they go and do this other thing where they're like, well, we need a temple. I know. Now that we got land, now that we can settle in, we need a temple. You know what a temple will allow us to do? It'll allow us to measure our piety. Where faith and obedience can be measured. We're going to be able to lay down this brick and this mortar, and somewhere in this, we can like establish rules and a protocol. And, and our love for God now can become definable because look at this wonder of the world we created. So we get this temple that's built. The problem is, is that uh, the temple is kind of fraught with problems. Originally, it was supposed to be built by David, God's first king of Israel. That was God's choice, who he anointed after Saul. But David was a complicated guy. He had, like, sons that wanted, like, throw a coup and tried to kill him. He has this episode with Bathsheba, which doesn't go well for anyone. Um, but um, even though he was a man after God's own heart, there was this idea that, like, well, too much blood said, he disqualified you, so we're going to give it to your son, Solomon. And Solomon gets entrusted. Now, the funny thing about Solomon is he's noted for wisdom. The wisdom writings of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, um, and, and the Song of Solomon are all thought of as wisdom writing. But do you know anyone who might be really smart, intelligent, but not always have the best common sense? This is Solomon's story. He's a brainiac, right? He's got all this wisdom, except he, he doesn't choose well always. And so this doesn't actually pan out. Again, God is trying to raise up a people who would display what God is like to the world, that their heart would be for all of the other nations. God is, in fact, a missionary God and is sending us into the world, not without resource, but he's sending us into the world as the image of God. 
don't miss that. So, there's this one, image of God. The, the Latin word for that is the Imago Dei. But then we get the Missio Dei. So the Missio Dei, the mission of God, is sending us out to be the Imago Dei, the image of God. Each of us are now image bearers, co-creators for the God of the universe to restore and repair a broken humanity to the place that God actually intended. Okay. So then we get to the first and second chronicles. What is that all about? Well, I like to call it a non-profit church instead, because even though they get kings, and some kings are good and some kings are bad, depending on if you're in the blue or the red category. No, I'm just kidding. But... Well, because what were they doing? They're like, hey, we want to be like every other kingdom in the world. He's like, no, I want you to be a people set apart. So he would raise up different prophets. And the prophet was always a kind of, thus saith the Lord. And it was a sort of invitation to turn your lives back to covenant. God created you in perfect relationship so that we can live in harmony with each other. Harmony with God and harmony with our environment. And the prophet kept doing it all the time. I would have been miserable to be able to go, oh, great. God called me to be a prophet. What do you want to be when you grow up? said, no kid anywhere. I want to be a prophet. No, you're going to get stoned. It's a guarantee. Like, the gift of martyrdom. You get to use it one time. No, don't do it. So, then we go through this whole episode, basically, until the end. And what do we get? Because here's the way God works. God is active. God is all-present. God is always When we kill the prophets off, when we kill the kind of promptings of the Holy Spirit, when we, when we, when we forge our own way outside of the creation, when we use our gifts and our talents and our creativity for our own gain, for innovation, for technology, to make ourselves more sufficient, we always walk outside of harmony with God and trust and dependence. So here's what happens. There's 400 years of silence. Jesus shows up. And what I want to just mention that we just celebrated is the Christmas story. It's a very Jewish story. And I know that sounds crazy because, oh, now we've got to have, like, everyone's Christmas advocated. And, and No, no. Understand this. The Christmas story is a really Jewish story. And all you have to do is open up to Matthew chapter 1. Of the four Gospels, Matthew is the most directive at a Jewish audience. Um, Luke would write where the gospel of what's called universality. He's going to write to a broader audience of Gentiles and, and, and notably women. Matthew was committed to writing to a very Jewish audience and writing things that only Jewish people would understand. And so he begins the story in, in what is the New Testament, or what we like to call a new covenant. And you and I are needed to have a refresh in our covenant relationship. And he begins to tell the story of how this new covenant, um, as the people called the witness to the world, people who are supposed to be divine messengers of God's hope and are now being asked to worship Caesar. So the people of God end up with a corrupt temple, a corrupt king, and they end up with a corrupt government. It's no longer the Egyptians, but now they're under Roman oppression. Why? Because they keep doing what is right in their own eyes. Because we've got our God. 
like a lucky rabbit's foot we keep trying to rub to get our way. God's like, I didn't create you for that kind of intention. And so the story is about this family with questionable circumstances. If you look at Matthew chapter 1 and you read that genealogy, you're like, hey, we're not asking which family, uh, if any of your family's crazy, we're asking which one. Because there were some nut jobs in the descendancy of Jesus. But he's saying to them, listen, the work that was started way back in the day with the original family, that work is still unfolding. This is a story of second chances. This is a story of rebirth. This is a story of beginning again. And it's the larger story of its intent and purpose. So what does he say? This is Matthew uh, chapter 19. I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne. Wait, wait, wait. So not every Jewish... And then we get Peter writing in the book of Acts, and he says, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy promise. of the world that I planned. This thing, we win in the end. But rather than just biding your time until Jesus returns in his rightful place, he's inviting us to co-labor, to co-create. I'll have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. So this new covenant is leading to this new earth, this place where the garden gets restored, which is just code language for the world that God intended. So let me just help you understand this. Too many times Christians have what I call an evacuation theology. I just got to get saved so when I die, I go somewhere else. Except what we see at the end of the story in Revelation is that God is not is returning and He's restoring what He once said was good and repairing all the people. You get this picture. This is where the story both um, uh, ends and the story begins. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You know that original Garden of Eden? Yeah, that's passed away. We kind of broke that. Uh, but I'm restoring something else. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. When was the last time that God's dwelling place was with humanity? The Garden of Eden? And he's coming back and he says, look it, this is what will be your new normal. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying for pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Wait a second. There's not... Revelation 22. This is where 
where the whole Bible starts to wrap up. This is John's revelation that he's having here. And he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And the leaves of the tree, uh, and no longer will there be any uh, curse, that is, of sin. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. See, friends, if we start the story, the Christian story, in Genesis chapter 3, all we have is Jesus as a cosmic problem solver. If we start the story in Genesis 3 about your salvation, all we're trying to do at that point is have a solution to the removal of guilt. But when we start the story in Genesis chapter 1, we start with a new identity. And the new identity is, you're a son. You're a daughter of the King. You are created in the image of God, co-creators with Him. And the beauty of we get to take that and we don't even understand the magnitude. It's only when you take a man and a woman, you can take all the parts of the co-creators with God. This was God's divine sovereignty going to be woven throughout. But that imago day, that image of God is chapter one. Because then we begin to see the purpose of our life, regardless of our day job, is to restore all things. See, we get a new heaven, God's dwelling place. It's now with people. One of the things I think is our biggest struggle, is um, particularly for um, Christians, is that we oftentimes have too many people giving mental assent to believing in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in being a good person. I believe in all these things. The problem is there's never been a reorientation of our hearts. Sitting here too much of the time trying to drag God along, holding him hostage, trying to get him to do my beckoning, my will. And he's saying, that's because you're not living within the created order. If you would align your life in me and become a co-creator and a partner with my broken humanity, but an ambassador of heaven on earth, your life would take on such more meaning and This is God's plan. And the way he does it is he executes on covenant relationships, even the we think of our salvation. Salvation becomes his status. And what we learn from this passage, and, and, and we see from this, is that Genesis 1 is about a garden. Genesis, uh, Revelation 22 is about a city, and gardens grow into cities. And what we learn is that our faith is unfolding. Our faith is not static. It's supposed to be progressive. It's supposed to be organic. It's supposed to be growing. We're supposed to grow in a greater capacity love as well as a greater boldness in our witness. We're supposed to grow in, 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 in a greater kind of um, powerful obedience. 
there is something that is supposed to be marked in the internal part of our lives that affects how we bear fruit in creation when we align with God. So I always get worried that people say, I prayed a prayer and I became a Christian at whatever age. I said this thing. My question is, is what is the difference that Christ is making in you today? What about if our faith, because we don't want it to go um, static. We don't want it to grow um, lethargic. But we want to be made new again and again. Of, of talent, and we start to say, how is it that I can be giving these back to God? And so, Two things in closing. Covenant is a story of a God who does not give up on us. He does not give up on the reality. That he is reclaiming the world that God intended. So my question to you is, do you trust him? Do you trust him with your fear? Do you trust him? Do you trust my life needs to be found in you? We were never created to be the center of our own life. So, I'm making an assumption that if you have a relationship with Christ, I want to invite you to consider that covenant and how you exercise that, those vows with God. It has to be for the restoration of all things. And so we have ways that we want to practice being in covenant with God. And that's the forms that we want to encourage you to maybe pray over, to take, um, to consider. And we're going to be collecting them. We talk about belonging by being in community and learning to apprentice. What if apprenticing is part of the normal Christian experience? Where we're not only committed to finding people further along, but we're also committed to bringing people to another level. We talk about being becoming by practicing hospitality and compassion, where it's literally you trying to make room for others, pray for their salvation, as well as learning to see needs that are different than our own, and then believing in God's love through generosity and gratitude and, and trust. the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to consummate that covenant. I want you to pray a prayer of surrender. I want you to pray a prayer of reorientation. I want you to pray a prayer that simply says, help me to not be the center of my own life. But if you have a covenant relationship with Christ, I want to invite you to be the intention. See, the church needs to offer some kind of relationship, it needs to be growing. And so that's really what we want to encourage. So one of the other things we want to do today is we want to celebrate communion. Um, we want to take inventory of our own lives and think about the, 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 the,
sins that we've committed as well as the wrongs we've done and um, our own trespasses, we want to take that seriously and come before God's table. So we're going to have stations at the back um, that you could just kind of funnel out and then come through the center and find. We're going to take the elements together, but we're going to distribute them. So we're going to invite you now as we pray and to stand with me. Um, and then we'll, I'll come back up and we'll take those elements together. Father, I'm aware that um, you're, uh, you are active and living and you're wanting to constantly do a new and wholeness. But I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ to understand the world that you actually intended and how our lives fit into something way better than we could have imagined. So would you break our hearts us have a growing awareness of your presence in our lives um, that we might know you more. Change us from the inside.